The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles uh, with you this morning, I'd love for you to open it to Ephesians chapter 3. If you have any questions about our message time today, you can send a text to 307 316 2023. We answer those questions on Tuesday mornings on our church Facebook page at 11.15, and then you can watch that later in the day on Facebook, or you can go to westwaychurch.com on our media page, and you can, and you can watch it there. Um, over the past few years, I've made it a point to go back and, and read books that I had read, um, that I had read when I was in high school. Um, and didn't really have the maturity to understand uh, like what I was reading or why I would be reading some of these things. And I've also been reading books that I didn't read when I was in high school. Like for some reason, I, I skipped over uh, them. A few months ago, one of Anne's uncles sent us a box of old books, and I've been slowly but surely making my way through this pile that's on my nightstand. And one I picked up Um, about a month and a half ago, was The Last of the Mohicans by James Fenimore Cooper. I don't know if you remember, um, if you remember reading that book, you probably remember the movie, um, which is not really very much like the book in any way, shape, or form. Um, So I started to read, I started to read the book, and it actually took me about five chapters to get into the flow of the language. Um, It was written in the early 1800s, and the setting was in the mid-1700s, so the language is not quite 300 years old, and it was a very difficult read, especially through those first five chapters. And I finished that book, and then I immediately started reading uh, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by uh, Samuel Clemens. You might probably know him as Mark Twain. Um, That book has actually been banned almost since it was publicized um, in the late 1800s. One of the first times it was banned was in 1905. It was banned by a librarian because Samuel Clemens used the word sweat instead of perspiration. So we've come come pretty far in terms of banning books um, at this point. Uh, The language in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is not... 2019 friendly in any way, shape, or form. Um, So it's kind of easy to understand um, why we might not want people to read this book, Um, but that's a sermon uh, for a different day. Um, The story of the adventures of Huckleberry Finn is simple. Uh, Huck Finn runs away from his aunt's home with one of their slaves, a man named Jim. The townspeople assume then that Jim has killed Huck Finn, so they're in this pursuit of trying to find him. So they go on some adventures, they hop on a raft and go all the way down the Mississippi River, um, deep into Louisiana. And at one point, Jim is captured as a runaway slave. And Huck is trying to figure out how he's going to, how he's going to free Jim. He doesn't know what to do, and he decides he's going to pray. And as I read this this week, I thought it was really appropriate. This is from The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I made up my mind to pray and see if I couldn't, tr- qu- couldn't try to quit being the kind of boy I was and be better. So I kneeled down. But the words wouldn't come. Why wouldn't they? 
It weren't no use to try and hide it from him, nor from me either. I knowed very well why they wouldn't come. It was because my heart weren't right. It was because I weren't square. It was because I was playing double. I was letting on to give up sin, but away inside of me I was holding on to the biggest one of all. I was trying to make my mouth say I would do the right thing and the clean thing, but deep down I knowed it was a lie, and he knowed it. You can't pray a lie. I found that out. Here's what James 1, 5 to 10 has to say. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. Listen again to what Samuel Clemens wrote. I about made up my mind to pray and see if I couldn't try to quit being the kind of boy I was and be better. So I kneeled down, but the words wouldn't come. Why wouldn't they? It weren't no use to try and hide it from him, nor from me either. I knew very well why they wouldn't come. It was because my heart weren't right. It was because I weren't square. It was because I was playing double. See, how we pray and what we pray matters. Here's the thing that I want you to to realize and to know and to accept from today. God wants to give you more than what you're asking for. When you pray to God, when you pray to him, he wants to give you more than what you're asking for. Here's Ephesians 3, verse 14. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father. Notice that right here in this verse, Paul picks up just where he left off at the beginning of chapter 3. When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the benefit of you Gentiles. I said last week that what follows through, up through verse 14 in Ephesians chapter 3 should be put in parentheses. So he starts talking, he kind of has another thought, talks about a whole bunch of stuff, and then comes right back to thinking about all of this. Well, what's the all of this? It's the gospel message. See, that's what Paul has spent the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians telling every single one of us. He's been telling us the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's telling us what God is offering to us, and he's telling us that we can't accept it properly without him guiding us. We can't accept the gospel without asking for what God alone can give, wisdom and insight and assurance of salvation and power. He's reminding us that that prior to being united with Christ, we were all dead. So if if you're a Christian in the room, what Paul is telling us, what he's telling me, what he's telling you, what he's telling the church at Ephesus, is prior to being united with Christ, you were dead. You were cut off from God and you were cut off from man. 
And we know this. And when we ask that question, why is there so much pain in the world? Why is there so much hurt in the world? The bottom line is because we are a people who aren't living in accordance with what God would have us do. So what does God do in response to our deadness? When he, in our minds, looks down upon us from afar. What's, what's God's response to our deadness? He gives us life. He gives us life. He brings us back to life because he's rich in mercy and he's rich in love through Jesus Christ. So when Paul thinks about all of these things, when he thinks about who he was, what he has access to through God, when he thinks about what God's response is, he does two things. The first of which is he physically responds. That's what it says here in verse 14. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees. There's a physical response going on here. And I wonder, what is your response to the gospel? When you, hear, when you hear this news, when you read this from Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, when you are exposed to this, what is your response? Before I was united with Christ, before I was a Christian, my response was nothing. So if you're, if you're not a Christian in the room and your response to all of this is nothing— you're, you're in good company. You're doing exactly, in fact, you're doing exactly what this text says you should be doing. And I know that. So because I was dead, when I would hear the gospel, I was uninterested. I was apathetic. It meant absolutely nothing to me. Because why would it? My mind isn't set on spiritual things. I don't care what the Bible has to say as a non-Christian. Why? Why would I? And yet, over time, something else began to happen inside of me as I was exposed to this gospel. And I think for other people, when, when, when they hear this, maybe it's not disinterest, maybe it's anger. Maybe it's frustration, maybe it's rage. Maybe, maybe as a non-Christian, we want to look at this text and we want to be like, I'm not dead. I mean, I... I feel alive. I experience life. And then ultimately that takes us to a place like, why would we want to have anything to do with a God who tells us we're dead? And after my initial disinterest in the gospel, I sort of just disengaged from what God was saying. Because honestly, I didn't really want to come and sit in a room where someone was going to describe reality to me. I didn't want to sit in a chair like you're sitting in today and have someone, like, as a person who wasn't a believer, I really just didn't feel like coming to church every single week only to have someone tell me that I was dead. Like, that makes sense, right? I didn't want to hear that over and over and over again. I just didn't want to face that reality because I had to do something with what I was hearing. And so now, if you're a Christian in the room, I want to ask you what your response is to this. When you hear this gospel, 
when you hear this good news, when you hear who you were before Christ and who you are now, when you hear about God's love and mercy for you, what's, what's your response? What's your response? When's, when's the last time that your reflection on what Jesus did for you When's the last time that your reflection on the reality that you've been saved by God, when has that caused any physical response in your life? When has the fact that Jesus saved you actually caused you to physically respond differently? I think we have some opportunities for that on Sunday mornings when we gather to be physical. We're allowed to raise our hands, not too high. Because those are the charismaniacs. But you're allowed to raise your hands. That's a, physical, that's a physical response to what God has done for us. Last week, horror of horrors. Someone came up front at the end during the song and knelt in front of the stage. See, that's a physical response. And there was nothing horrible about that. That's a physical response. And I think as Christians, sometimes we forget that we are to love God with our whole selves. Here's, I'm going to ask you to do something radical right now. I'm going to ask you, if you can, if you're able, I'm going to ask you to find a space by you, and I'm going to ask you to get on your knees. I'm going to ask you to do that. And we're going to pray Paul's prayer from Ephesians chapter 3 together. Let's pray. God, we pray that from your glorious unlimited resources, you will empower us with inner strength through your spirit. Then Christ will make his home in our hearts as we trust in him. Our roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may we have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May we experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Get back to your seats. Lots of creaking knees out there. I don't remember where I was that I was having this conversation um, this week. It might have been it might have been in our staff meeting, or possibly in our small group, and it might have been at lunch with a friend. But we were talking about how we see this we see this example from Paul about getting on our knees. And we remember that Paul was writing this from a prison. And a prison in Paul's day would have been like a cave. 
And I'm sure one of the first things that we did when I said, hey, let's get on our knees, the first thing we did, like, is the floor going to be clean? Is there anything, is there going to be like a little rock that I'm going to put my kneecap on and I'm going to feel that for the rest of the week? What's interesting is Paul's writing this from a prison. And my guess is for him to, to be on his knees, he, didn't have, he did not have any of those first world problems on his mind when he got on his knees and prayed. He just responded because he was so overwhelmed and overcome by the goodness of the gospel. What are you praying for? When you pray, what do you pray for? Have you ever prayed for something and then wondered if God actually wanted that same thing for you? When I was younger, I remember praying for all sorts of things. I prayed for toys. I prayed that I would pass a test. As I got older, I would uh, pray that I would pass more tests. I would pray for a job or for more money. I would pray that my wife would like me more. But were those things what God wanted for me? Was that what God wanted I talk with Christians all the time who are uncertain of how to pray. And a few weeks ago, I saw this post from a pastor named Derwin Gray, and I'm just going to read it. If you want to learn how to pray, read prayers in the Bible and notice how much different they are than ours. When we were reading that prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, did you notice how different that prayer was probably from most of the things that we pray about? Derwin continues, hear my heart on this. A lot of times we're not praying, we're doing superstition. Lord, gimme, 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 gimme. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. The older I get, the more I pray scripture for you, myself, and my loved ones. See, over the past month or so, ever since we read this text from Ephesians chapter 1, As much as I read through and pray over the the connect cards that you turn in on a Sunday morning, the thing that I have most consistently prayed for over this church body is that you would have wisdom and insight so that you would know truly who God is. is. That has infected my brain over the last month. As much as I pray for those connect cards when you turn them in, of, over, your, over your circumstances and over the situations that you're facing in your life, what I'm really praying for is that God would flip on the light in your heart so that you would know as a Christian that you have assurance of your salvation. That you would confidently believe that. And the third thing that I've been consistently praying for you over is that you would understand the power that God has for you. At some point, I made a note on my sermon notes, and I asked the question, like, what would our church look like if these things came true? I have no idea the answer to that question. What would my life look like? What would your life look like if these were your prayers and God answered them? What would that look like? I think one of the reasons I don't know the answer to that question is because that's not what my prayers look like. 
See, when I pray for a job or I pray for something in, in the midst of my circumstance, it can become really tangible for me, right? I can know if I got it or if I didn't. But what Paul is, is praying for the Ephesians for, and then he's giving us an example to pray over, is so much different than what our prayers look like. We, can't, we don't even know. We can't even understand this kind of language because this isn't how we typically pray. And I think the big part of that, or the reality of that is, is because we don't know if what we're praying for is actually God's will. And when we pray scripture, we can know it's God's will because this is inspired by him. So I can keep praying for things that I don't know if God's really going to answer that. So think about how many prayers in the last week you have prayed that have included the phrase, if it is your will. I'm not saying don't pray for things in your circumstance. But I guess I'm to the point in my life where I would rather just pray for things that I know God wants to give me. I would rather live a life that I know is in obedience to what God is trying to accomplish in my life than pray for a whole bunch of stuff that I'm just unsure of. And the question that we have to ask is, what are we praying for? Paul prays for just three things, so I'm going to add three things to the three things for you that I've been praying for you for the last month. Now I'm going to have six things. Here's the three things. He prays that the believers at Ephesus would be strengthened inwardly. He prays that Christ would dwell in the hearts of the believers at Ephesus, and he prays that we would comprehend and experience God's love. That's it. That's it. Let's talk about this first thing. Paul prays that they would have inward strength because so often our concerns are not inward. So often we are concerned about other things. We are concerned about the outward circumstances and situations of our lives. But God's primary intention is to work inside of us. It's not that God doesn't care about what's going on on the outside, but God is concerned more internally with you than he is your external situation. And remember, if we don't know who we are, we will define ourselves by our circumstances. And that, that sense of self comes from inside of us. Author Rich, Richard Phillips talks about it this way. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about suffering from this thorn in his flesh. If you're, if you're in the church and you've been in the church for a while, you've probably heard that phrase. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about this thorn in his flesh, this thing that he prayed three times to God for, asking him to remove this thorn, this circumstance. And God's response, Paul says, each time God said, my grace is all you need, my power works best in weakness. So here's the scene. God, remove this from me. Anyone ever prayed that? God, take this from me, this circumstance, this situation. And when Paul did that three times, God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. And what was Paul's response to this? Did he complain that God was only interested on, in what was going on inside of him? Did he talk about how terrible his life was? Did he define his life by his thorn? 
by his circumstance? No, he wrote this. So now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, and persecutions and troubles I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, as much as God loved Paul and and was concerned about his outer circumstance, God was far more interested in what was going on inwardly in Paul's life. And frankly, some of us really need to hear this. Because some of us are so consumed by our circumstance. And all God wants to do is fix what's going on inside of you. Which is the real problem. Here's the second prayer. For Christ to dwell in our hearts and the roots to grow down into him. Again, why heart? Because God is more concerned about what's going on inside of you than he is about your external circumstances. And see, this is the opposite of us, especially in 2019. We're far more interested in outward appearance in 2019 than what's going on in someone's heart. Which is why when our circumstances come against us, we define ourselves by them. And when we are successful in our circumstances, we define ourselves by them. Feeling pretty good today. Why? Because I had a good day. Like, Every, like, I caught all of the green lights between, between Westway Christian Church and my house in Gearing. Like, I've actually defined a good day by that. I've defined a good day by not having to wait in line very long at McDonald's for breakfast. Like, that's how I define a good day. By these external circumstances. And for us, we're more interested in the outward than we are in the inward. And if we truly want to be right outwardly, we have to be changed inwardly. Jesus says this in Matthew 15, For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, slander, all sexual morality, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. See, our real problem is is in here. It's not what we look like or what we don't look like or how much money we have or how much money we don't have or what kind of place we live in or don't live in or what kind of car we drive or what kind of job we have or how many kids we have or any of these other external circumstances. For the Christian, those things don't define us. God is interested in what's going on in our hearts. And I want you to imagine for a second that, that you're going to plant a tree in your backyard. So what you do is you dig a hole, right? And you put the tree down in there and you water it. And a few days later, you look outside your back window and you think to yourself, you know, I should have planted that tree somewhere else. So you go outside and you get a shovel and you dig the tree up and you go dig a new hole and you, and you put it over there and you, and you water it and you do all these things. And then a few days later, you look over and you think, ah, oh, that should probably be in the front yard. So you do that again. At what point does that tree die? That's a really ridiculous thing that we would do. But for some of us, this is, I've just defined your Christian life for you. I've shown you what's really taking place inwardly in your life. Because what we're constantly doing is planting and uprooting and planting and uprooting and planting and uprooting. And what God wants us to do is 
is for Christ to enter into our hearts and then for us to bear down on him and place our roots deeply into him. And when we don't do this, we wonder why nothing's changed in our lives. Because we've not, we've not rooted down into Christ. So how do we do this? How do we put down these roots? Here are four things that if you do these things, your life will be changed. Are you ready for them? You should write these down. The first one is read your Bible. I know you've never, ever, 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 ever heard that before in the church, that you should read your Bible. There's nothing revolutionary about this. If we want our roots to grow deeply into Christ, we want to read our Bibles. We want to pray Bible prayers. Especially Paul's letters are filled with prayers. We want to pray Bible prayers. We want to live differently and we want to gather as a body. And there is nothing revolutionary about those things. There's nothing new. There's nothing fancy about them. Just how we grow roots down into Christ. Here's the third prayer. That we would comprehend and experience the love of Christ. The goal here is maturity in Christ. Are we living up to our level of knowledge? I asked you this question a few weeks ago. There are some people in this room who have only been Christians not even six months. I would expect them, I would expect their obedience to, to what they know to be somewhere down about here. Right? Because they're, they're brand new. We have this joke in our small group all the time, like, we have a lot of kids in our small group, and we have a lot of two-year-olds in our small group. And when they start doing two-year-old things, my, my, the thing that I say every single week is, how long have you been here? You've been alive for two years, and this is the best you can do? Like, that's ridiculous. Right? And for some of us, we look into the lives of someone who's been a Christian for six months, and we expect them to have this super like powerful level high of obedience. We accept, expect them to be like us. And then there's a whole nother um, group of people that have been Christians for a really, really, really long time who know everything. And, and for some of those Christians, their level of obedience is in the exact same spot. I just can't figure it out. Sometimes that's me. But isn't that old? Isn't Paul praying for more for our lives? Doesn't he desire more for us? And none of these things are about my knowledge of God. They're about my relationship with him. Paul's assuming here that his readers are saved. Pretty big assumption, I would say. But he's assuming that his readers are saved he assumes that they know Christ's love, but, the, but they're not accurately living up or relying on it. They're not leaning into this strength that they have. So he prays for them. And he uses these, these four examples. He uses width. And what he's telling us is, is God's love is wide. It's an open invitation for everyone. Some of us as non-Christians were acting like God could never accept us because of what we've done in our lives. Like there is no way 
we, we don't say this, we think it. If God only knew what I really did, there's no way that he would ever, 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 ever accept me. That's where some of us get hung up on, is our own experience. That's why Paul used the word dead in chapter 2. He said, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. And he wasn't only talking to a small group of people who only sinned kind of some bad sins. He was talking to everyone. So, so when we hear this death and we push back against it because, because it doesn't sound nice, it doesn't sound fair, he's paving the way for a wide love. Even the worst of sinners are welcome in Christ's kingdom. You can't outsend God's love and grace. Listen, if you feel like you're dead in your life and you're separated from God, God knows. God knows. And his response is to love you. His response is to offer life to you from Jesus. Here's the second thing that Paul talks about. He says Paul's, or God's love is long. And what he means by that is it's timeless. It was demonstrated long before time began in that relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It was demonstrated in the, in the garden with, with Adam and with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all throughout the Old Testament. Christ demonstrated it on the cross to us that it was a timeless love. And we see it today when we gather as the church and we are in relationship with one another. And it's going to go on forever, even after we die. Even when these worldly things are gone, God's love is going to be eternal. It will always exist. God's love is high. See, Christ was lifted up. He was lifted up on the cross. And right now he's seated in the place of honor by God's right hand. God's love encourages us to look up to him and away from ourselves. And isn't that what we talked about last week? When I focus on my circumstances and my situation, where am I looking? Inward. It's funny, earlier this week we got a text from our daughter. Our son Grayson is four and a half years old. And she said he was sitting on the stairs and he looked sad. And our daughter said, Grayson, are you okay? What's wrong? And he said, just chilling. Just chilling and thinking. See, that is like the ultimate in navel-gazing, right? Like inwardly reflecting on my life. I don't know how hard the life of a four-and-a-half-year-old is in East Palestine, Ohio. He's got a lot going on, though. He just has a new brother. Getting ready to move to Oklahoma here in a few weeks. So he's probably, you know, feeling a little sorrowful over those things. But what Christ's love is doing by being high is that it, it takes our eyes off of ourselves and encourages us to look to him. And when I'm in that space of looking inwardly, I need to, I need to look up. I need to get my gaze off of myself. Here's the fourth thing. He says God's love is deep. Christ gave his very blood to the point of death so that every person on earth could have the opportunity to be alive again. 
what more do we want God to do for us? What more do we want God to do for us to show us his love? Give us a house? A car? Like, if God really loved me, then he would do this. No, see, if God really loved you, he would send his son Jesus down a cross for you so you could be in relationship with him. Like, God... God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything. And he certainly doesn't owe any of us anything more than what he's already done for us. This is what it looks like to look up to Christ. And I think one of our biggest issues as humanity, especially as it relates to our prayers, is that our own aspirations are far too small for God the things that we pray for, the things that we desire from him, they're just far too small. They're not grand enough. They're not big enough. They're far below what God desires actually for us in life. So we can have everything that God offers to us. We can have this power, and we can have this assurance, and we can have this wisdom and insight, and we can have this inner strength. Like God is offering this to all of us, and what we do instead is we, we settle for happiness. We settle for all the green lights. We settle for the car. We settle for financial security. We settle for respect. We settle for prestige. We settle for the, the opportunity to experience pleasure. We settle for protection against hardships and difficulties in our lives. And, and when we do that, we are not taking full advantage of what God has to offer us. We're saying, God, you want so much more for me than, than what I want, but I'm just going to be happy with where I'm at. I'll just, I'll just take this temporary thing. See, Paul is praying that we would be filled with the fullness of life because he knows that we're not just passing through life. The, the definition of life in 21st century America is be born, go to school, get on a traveling sports team, go to college, a good one, so you can escape with having a ton of debt that you will never, ever, ever, ever pay off. Go find a good job, get married, have kids, work in about five different jobs between the time you're 25 and by the time you retire, and then go rent a mobile home or buy a mobile home and drive around the country. That's, that's America's dream. We're going to talk about this next week in our Family Life Workshop. You should come if you haven't signed up for that. It's for everyone. But that's America's dream for you. And we are exposed to that dream all the time. We are being sold the benefits of America's dream for you all the time. And I would argue strongly that that is probably not what God wants for you. I would argue strongly that God wants something different for you. Because America's dream does not deal with the reality of who we are as sinners. It only reinforces it. It only manifests who I really am in my brokenness and encourages me to live in that way. 
And when we are living out that dream instead of what God wants, it, it leaves us the same person, unimproved and untransformed. And when I think about my, when I do that navel gazing, I think of how terrible I am. And it's a pretty quick trip because I'm very well aware of, of who I am outside of Christ. I'm very well aware of my deadness. And it doesn't take long for me to get there. So I need to focus on him. I need to do the things that he wants me to do. And see, we know this as people. We know that these things that we so often elevate as the pinnacle of existence, we know that they leave us wanting. We know that. That's why we're always in pursuit of the next thing. It's why we always have to have something else. When Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman in John 4, he said this, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. So everyone who, who drinks of the water of the, of the American dream, you're going to be thirsty again. And you're, continue, you're going to continue to be thirsty. And that's why I said last week that everything we pursue outside of Christ only leaves us empty and wanting more. Which is why our last job didn't fulfill us. And you know what? Your next one won't either. I love you, and it's just not going to work. God sees us in our dead state, and because he's rich in love and rich in mercy, he raises us from the dead, and he wants to fix and solve our real problems. He wants us to rest in him. He wants us to find true comfort in him. He wants us to find hope and peace in him and be satisfied in what he offers us. God wants to deliver us from sin's guilt and give us the peace and ability to show real love. Wouldn't it be nice to not feel guilty? The answer is and isn't stop sinning. If you don't want to feel guilty about something, stop doing it. Right? That's really easy. If you don't want to feel guilty about something, accept what Jesus has done for you and recognize that his work on the cross was sufficient for you. And you don't have to live in that spot. It's not about not living with regret or, gee, I wish I didn't do that. But what we read in Hebrews last year is Jesus, as the high priest, frees us of our guilt. You don't get that from any other place. And as Christians, it's time for us to grow up and it's time for us to mature and pray for the things that God really cares about. If we want our prayers answered, then we should pray the kinds of prayers that God wants to answer for us. He's offering us the fullness of life, and we, he wants us to ask him for it. God will always give you what you're asking for if it is in accordance with his will. Always. And when we pray Bible prayers, we're always asking in accordance with his will. Always. A few weeks ago, I gave you a homework assignment. It was to just have a meal with someone from Westway and talk about what God is doing in your own life. Did you do it? Did you take advantage of that? We did, and we were incredibly blessed by it. We loved it. See, because God wants to give you more than you're asking for, let's take him up on that. Like, let's, let's challenge God. Like, this is what he says is going to happen. So what if we prayed in the way that he tells us to pray. Like, what 
would happen. Here's my assignment for the next 30 days. Pray Bible prayers from Ephesians for yourself, for your friends, for your family members, for those that don't know Christ, and for our church body. Just pray those things. You get tempted to pray for all of these circumstantial things. I'm not, I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying we are receiving some really specific instruction from God on how we ought to pray and the things that God is interested in. So rather than pray for someone to get a house that I'm not quite so sure may be God's will, how about I pray these prayers because I know God wants to answer them. What if we did that for 30 days? They're found in Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23, and then in today's text, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. I challenge you. Sorry, that sounded weird. I challenge you. I throw down. I throw down. Like, will you pray this? Will you pray this? What if we stopped seeing connect cards that were just filled with everyone's circumstance? And it was what God wanted. What happened in our body? I'll confess I have no idea. But I want to pray the prayers that God answers. Let's do that. God, we pray that you would give us spiritual wisdom and insight so that we would grow in our knowledge of you. God, we ask that you would flood our hearts with light so that we'd understand the confident hope you've given to those who are united with Christ. God, help us understand the incredible greatness of your power available for us. God, from your glorious unlimited resources, empower us with inner strength through your Spirit. God, allow Christ to dwell in our hearts that our roots will grow down into him and keep us strong. God, help us to fully experience the width, length, height, and depth of your love. Now, all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all the generations, forever and ever.